0: welcome to What's Brewing CISFA. What's Brewing CISFA is a podcast produced for the California Community Colleges Student Financial Aid Administrators Association. I'm your host, Dennis Schrader. I serve as the 2021-22 CISFA past president. My co-host Dana is still at home recovering from a little appendicitis, and so she won't join us till probably next week. But What's Brewing CISFA will hopefully continue to inform and entertain you 30 minutes at a time. So let's start the show. And welcome to another episode of What's Brewing, CISFA. Let's start the show off with our first cups. Or maybe Solo Cup there. But not Red Solo Cup because that would be a brand name. But as I said, Dana is at home recovering after having her appendix taken out, I thought put in, but I, I, I should have corrected myself last show taken out and she's recovering. Well, everyone that knows her or wants to know her, she's a fantastic person. I hope she actually downloads these episodes to hear all the good things I say about her. But I told her I'd carry on for this week. And again, hopefully she'll be back next week. Not just because I want her healed up and back in the office, which I do because next week is the first week of the fall semester here at our school. But I want to see her again here at the office. So hopefully soon enough, uh, we'll have her back. Until then, I get to run the news all by myself. And hopefully I've collected enough news to fill a show for us today. I'm going to kick things off with uh, an email I received from a, a colleague Uh, that comes from Department of Ed. They had put out a summary recently of changes to the application processes and system for the 2022-23 school year. So this fall is part of the 2021-22 school year. This will be for the school year beyond that. Um, So some things were already implemented recently, you know, regarding the FAFSA uh, things, for example, The drug conviction question, the question about selective service, although still on the form, those items are no longer considered to be eligibility items. The big stuff starts rolling out for the 2022-23 school year, and that FAFSA, again, that FAFSA for that cycle, comes up this October. So as it says here in the announcement, there were no major changes other than changes to the look and feel of FAFSA on the web, aligning it with the design of the rest of the studentaid.gov website world. Uh, But here are some other changes that are coming down the line for the FAFSA. So users will select a role before they even start a FAFSA. So normally students, it's a very student-centric form, would assumingly know that the form is about them from the start. But by users selecting their role of either student or parent or preparer, this hopefully is meant to reduce the likelihood that parents will start to form with their own information instead of their students' information. There will be some other changes in some names of options. There was a question asked um, regarding Schedule 1 of tax returns. This is the detail part here um, regarding references to virtual currency. It's kind of a real deep one there because we back back in the day when you did a FAFSA, if there was a question that asked if you did a 1040 form, the long form, were you eligible to do the short form? And the reason is the formula for calculating that expected family contribution was slightly different uh, for people. Because remember back in the old days, we had the 1040 we had the slightly shorter 1040A. And for those of us who might have had like one W-2 or when we were young, the 1040EZ that we could fill out. Well, there was a number of tax changes from the last administration. So somewhere in the last four to five years that reworked everything. So now all there really is is a 1040, but a variety of new schedules. So we'll let's schedule one, two, three, four, five. And I think there was a schedule six. And so those were the new questions that were asked on the FAFSA if you had to do a Schedule 1, for example. So references to stuff like that. References to the 1040 non-resident EZ were taken away. Changes to stuff about uh, the household information is going to make some new changes in the FAFSA because uh, the way they look at the number of people in the household and they used to ask a question about the number of people going to college, that question is actually disappearing. So... There's a number of things coming out for 2022-23, um, including some behind-the-scenes stuff. If you want more details, I printed out because I like to have the paper copy for my weekend reading when I'm not trying to read for fun. The summary of these changes from the Department of Ed. And, of course, as the summary comes from the Department of Ed, it's only 33 pages long. So if you've ever, if you got lots of time on your hands and you want to see nice charts and such, We'll definitely put a link in our show notes to how you can get this summary of changes straight from the Department of Ed. In other news, moving on, Public Policy Institute of California recently put out uh, an article just last week about how applications for the DREAM Act have fallen and fallen significantly. So, you know, this goes all the way back to 2001 when Assembly Bill 540, or as we call it in the business, AB 540, was passed primarily to allow undocumented students to pay the in-state rate on tuition at the public schools. Before that, if you were an, uh, an undocumented student, obviously you could still go to K-12, through you could go to college, but you had to pay what an out-of-state student paid. And to just give you an example, UCLA, An in-state student, let's say, pays about $12,000 a year. An out-of-state student almost pays three times as much. So going back to 2001, Assembly Bill AB 540 was passed that at least allowed them to pay the in-state rate. And then probably about 10 years later, somewhere around 2011-12, a couple of new bills were passed. One was just to make it legal that a college could process incoming scholarships for an undocumented student because there's some legal there that had to be done. And the other one created what's called the California Dream Act Application. This form, also sometimes called the CADA, although I hear people are trying to get rid of that nickname, the CADA, the California Dream Act Application, C-A-D-A-A, something like that, came about mimicking the FAFSA used just by our AB540 students created here in California, for California undocumented students. Well, the form has been a hit because again, the form is used then to award things like Cal grants, Chafee grants for our foster youth or former foster youth, and specifically at the community colleges, the California College Promise Grant, which is our old-timey fee waiver. Well, if, as you can assume, application numbers are down. So more than 22,000 Cal grants were awarded to Dream Dream Act applicants for the 2019-2020 school year. And that was about 4% of all Cal grants. Last year, more than 45,000 students filed a Dream Act application. But during the pandemic, applications have dropped in California and the rest of the country. So in 2021, FAFSA applicant forms submitted by Californians are down 3% compared to 2019 while dream act applications have fallen 16% applications are down for both potential first-time students and returning students. So again, this is an interesting article from the public policy Institute of California nonpartisan research uh, center, well worth reading. And of course there's some information here about some steps to ensure that students will receive more aid going forward. So Recently passed was AB 132, which expands programs and eligibility and requires districts to confirm by the 2022-23 school year that their high school seniors have completed financial aid applications for the 2023-24 school year. So that's like another year off. But schools will be ramping this up because, in a sense, it's saying that unless students decide to actively opt out, they're expected that they will apply for financial aid if they're continuing on to school, uh, you know, post-secondary school. So definitely, uh, I think it's a step in the right direction, maybe a little ham-fisted or heavy-handed, but it is a way to help get our students on the ball because, again, when you don't apply for aid or I see you at the last minute while you're trying to sign up for classes and then go, how do I pay? And you haven't done anything when that FAFSA form's been out for probably 10 months or more, You kind of know where you are. It's coming out of your pocket or you're behind the eight ball. So let's get going, students, and let's do all we can and convince our students to get on the ball. Continuing on with state-related things, this was something I found and I found very interesting because I was looking for some information specifically on the number of Cal Grant awards made last year and try to compare those to the numbers coming up for this year because it's always a question how we are, how we're doing as a system. And I found one great page specifically for schools and counselors that has a summary of all this wonderful information. So I'm going to share the link with this, it's called their resource documents page. And so you can find everything from the Cal grant handbook updated not too long ago. Cal grant, what we call income and asset ceilings. So that's just something when I'm talking at a financial aid night with parents and they go, if my income is a certain amount, does that mean I get no aid? Well, what the FAFSA is really hard to tell. Cause again, there's a number of factors that calculate what we call the expected family contribution. And that number high or low tells us high or low, the students need for financial aid. So it's kind of a sliding scale, it's an indexing figure in a sense. Cal grants are a little different. There are some set ceilings or maximums for the size of a household to be eligible both on the income and asset side for either a Cal Grant A or B or such. And so there are some tables out there. And so those tables are put out every year, You know, and they're adjusted for whatever, inflation, et cetera. And so I found where I could find literally the last six years of Income and asset ceilings. You also can find comparison charts of the different programs. A college GPA calculator. Because again, part of the Cal Grant consideration right out of high school is they use your high school GPA for your junior and senior years. Minus a couple things like ROTC classes, physical education classes, and a couple other things. You can't use weighted scores. But for students who've been out of high school for a while or are coming to community college, they can use their community college GPA once they've had a certain number of units taken. And that sometimes can be helpful for the students who just barely got out of high school but are doing really well their first couple years, maybe didn't get Cal Grant because of that, but now may qualify for Cal Grant when they're into their community college years or potentially getting close to transferring time. So I found all this information just randomly by looking for one thing, thinking that it was going to take me just to that specific item. But no, there's just a variety of things here at this resource documents page. And I have to say, the California Student Aid Commission has done quite a bit of work uh, to improve their website. They've improved their uh, data system, what we call web grants. There's web grants for students where students can manage their Cal Grants. There's web grants for administrators like me and my staff, and they've done a lot of improvements behind the scenes and in front of the scenes to make their information a lot cleaner and easier to find. So if you need to work with the Student Aid Commission or you just want some resources on Cal Grants or other state aid programs, I'll show you how to get to it. We'll have a link in our show notes. And in fact, I'll maybe put a couple links here. I actually pulled the PDFs here that tell me the award amounts for Cal grants, as they do vary according to whether you're a community college, a UC, a Cal State, et cetera. Because with the UCs and Cal States in particular, it's pegged to the cost of the tuition. With community colleges, there is a maximum, usually a Cal Grant B, that's tied to enrollment level. That amount usually is set in law, but it also has usually had an added amount to it based upon people who will pay in a certain amount of money on their California tax returns towards the program well apparently that bottomed out over this uh, pandemic time and so we're back down to kind of like the base amount but I'll include those links for you in the show so I think here I'm gonna slip a little music in before we move on to some other updates in particular from the federal people And we're back. And we're back for our second cup. Or in my case, my my first cup with a little extra. The little refill. So back to the news we go. So some recent news and you might have read or seen some of this on the major uh, networks or newspapers, if anyone knows what a newspaper is anymore. Um, Starting in September, Department of Ed had said they will begin automatically discharging Title IV or federal Title IV loans and teacher education assistance for college and higher ed or TEACH grants, um, service obligations of borrowers who are identified as eligible for total and permanent disability based on information obtained through the quarterly data match that they do with the social security administration. So in other words, students who have a total and permanent disability as marked with social security, because oftentimes they report it through them uh, because they may then start collecting certain types of social security disability insurance, SSDI. So under the William D Ford federal direct loan program, older uh, fell loans, as we call them the federal family education loans, federal Perkins loans, teach grant programs, uh, and sometimes those teach grants turn into loans if a student does not go into the world of teaching, they may qualify for this discharge um, based on certification from a physician that they're totally and permanently disabled or a notice of award of SSDI or SSI from Social Security Administration or a determination by the Veterans Affairs Office that they're unemployable due to a service-connected disability. This is all supposed to simplify the process for students because sometimes, you know, getting these different certifications or documentation can be tough. So they believe, and this is the big part here, they, they say here in the uh, little update from Federal Student Aid, we will apply the change to approximately 323,000 borrowers owing more than $5.8 billion. Uh, and these were people who were notified of their eligibility for this through prior social security administration matches. But in this case, we may not have submitted applications for their discharge um, as previously required under the law. Now, this does exclude some that are getting TEACH grants because those are handled a little differently, Um, but that's a big number. So obviously there's a number of students out there who've had student loans in some kind of status who are going to have it discharged because of this total and permanent disability. I'll give you a link to this topic and this uh, announcement that just came out August 19th from Federal Student Aid in our show notes. Now, on top of that, some really sexy news here on the implementation of the return of title IV funds, regulations as outlined uh, in another posting uh, from August 20th. So on September 2nd of last year, the department did publish in the federal register, which is like that federal thing that comes out every day of regulations and things going on in the government. There were final regulations, on distance education and innovation issues. And there was a number of changes to the regulations governing um, the Higher Ed Act. And so this changed some of the requirements here uh, uh, for return to Title IV. And return to Title IV is basically a process. It's what happens if a student receives federal aid for a semester or quarter or whatever period of time and then completely withdraws. The federal government, uh, through our process, or what we call R2-T4 process, a student will earn their financial aid based upon how long they're in that period of time. So generally speaking, in the olden days, and I think the 60% thing still applies, if a student made it 60% or longer into a semester or quarter before completely withdrawing, they will have earned 100% of their aid. (laughs) But if they haven't, they drop out after a couple of weeks or not quite to the 60% point. They may owe some of that money back. So there's a number of amendments to this regulation and I'm not going to go through them all, but in particular, there was a order of return of funds. Like you return Pell Grant money first, you return FSEOG next, etc., etc. They've changed some of that around because it's a, about returning grant money first oftentimes and then getting into like loans or other programs there's some other changes as far as what academic attendance means or attending an academically related activity those all kind of influence what was that last date of attendance for the student which again can make a big difference uh and other things like if we use a freeze date as far as freezing a student's enrollment and thus no changes thereafter, as far as adding classes, etc., and how that might affect their return to Title IV calculation. I'll give you a link to this. This is just some additional information. People have been working on this since July 1st and trying to implement this because it's taken effect just a month or so ago, but there's a lot more to it. One last thing on the federal SUNY front. I just happened to notice that for 2021-22, the school year, we're just starting up. The Federal Student Aid Handbook has some of the chapters already posted to the Federal Student Aid Partner website. So normally the first part that comes out is the Application and Verification Guide. This helps you understand completely the application process through the FAFSA and also verification as far as when we're required to verify, for example, income, or (laughs) at income or household size or things like that. It takes you through how that works. So that guide is out there and available, downloadable or in an online form. Second volume one, which is the student eligibility part has been posted. And amazingly they skip down to volume four, which is about processing aid and managing federal student aid funds is available. Volumes two and three kind of fill in everything else, uh, and those are not available quite yet. Uh, And usually, the handbook is never quite always available before the start of a school year. So don't worry, people, it's coming along. But that's, uh, for example, institutional eligibility things. Uh, And there's another one specifically about what we call campus-based aid. That would be our federal work-study program and that FSEOG grant. So those two are what we call campus-based because unlike Pell Grant, a campus will only get an allocation of work-study money that then they divide up among students. Same thing with FSEOG, whereas if every student who applied for Pell Grant and everyone who applied for aid at my school qualified, say, for Pell Grant, they could all get Pell Grant. There's not a limited dollar amount for my school. But I'll let you know, the handbook is starting to roll, now, roll out now piece by piece. So I'll give you a link to how you can download those like I do. I download the PDFs for easy reference. But they've also made a really nice electronic version for you to find uh, and a link to, and then you can search, highlight, etc. keep it handy and nearby. Well, that's enough of advertising for the feds. Haven't said much about NASA lately, have we? So this is something nice. They just put out what's called an implicit bias toolkit. So as it says here, I'm going to read it right from the website a little bit and add a little to it. As individuals, we all have implicit or unconscious biases, which are the assumptions, stereotypes, and unintended or unintentional beliefs about others based on their perceivable characteristics. So these can be positive or nev- negative and influence us to have a preference or aversion towards a person or a group of people based on our attitudes about them without our awareness. So consider, you know, significant thought happens in our subconscious and that these implicit associations are created and stored in our subconscious. And thus we may act on it, on these biases, without even knowing it. So NASA convened a task force to assist with identifying and reducing these biases in our administration of aid and they've come out with a a toolkit for us. (laughs) So they invite us to reflect and consider that we directly influence the trajectory of all of our students' lives as they go through school. Uh, And so there is a downloadable toolkit by PDF for you to check out. So I'll definitely give you guys a link to that. I think it's something I'll take just to see where things lie, because, again, it's about implicit, as in, It's somewhere in the back of our heads. You don't even think about it, but considering all the judgments that we could be making as far as reviews of satisfactory academic progress petitions or professional judgment requests from students, requests to review uh, for their dependency status and make maybe an independent student. These could all be things that could directly influence their ability, our students' ability to get financial aid. Looking at the clock, I'm going to not talk too much on these, but there are some articles I'm going to put in there. They're more opinion pieces in somewhat. But uh, Forbes had a nice little article about how to appeal your financial aid package. This is nothing specific really to community colleges. Students don't generally appeal um, in the same way they might aid packages from a four year school. But these would be cases where, again, we certainly look at things like changes in parent income and such where it could make a difference in federal or state aid eligibility. But this article goes into a little bit more about like merit-based aid or aid from a particular school that comes straight from the school, how to take that approach. So I'll give you a link to that article. There was another, there was an opinion piece out from the Hexinger report about uh, doubling Pell grants makes sense if Biden ditches the rest of his higher ed agenda. So I read it and it was interesting. And so it talks about how there's all this talk about doubling the value or the amount per student of the Pell Grant and how, you know, as part of this America's American Families Plan Act or whatever, if Biden were to really go forward with this, how maybe some of the other things he's asking for in the Higher Ed Act changes should probably just be thrown away. And because I think it's really, when you look at it, it's the idea of the whole boost of how Pell Grant kind of negates this whole need to talk about free community college or some other programs that they talk about. Interesting article. Go ahead and read it. There's another uh, article very close to that uh, out on Real Clear Education called Double Pell. Costs three times as much. and A different writer talks about how, in reality, when we talk about doubling up Pell Grant, Uh, it's really going to cost significantly more than what we really think. And again, that's primarily because you're not just doubling up the kids who now get Pell Grant, but you actually increase the overall percentage of students who do because of the way Pell Grant is structured. It's, It's kind of a sliding scale. The neediest students with those zero expected family contributions get the maximum Pell Grant. And that slowly tapers off as that expected family contribution number goes up. But in a sense, that chart will continue to go to higher numbers and still get Pell Grant. I guess it'll give you some stuff to think about. And then lastly, I'll throw out a Bloomberg opinion piece that talks about student loans. Again, not a big problem here in the community colleges, but something we certainly talk about. But it, it's uh, opinion piece and the uh, title is The Curb Student Debt, Let Borrowers Declare Bankruptcy. You know, because in short, if you didn't know, for federal student loans, generally it's nearly impossible to declare bankruptcy and have your federal student loans wiped out through bankruptcy. But this article goes on to talk a little bit about how allowing to do so will hopefully allow a little bit more discernment in who is taking out these large amounts of loans, oftentimes for grad school and sometimes in programs that may not have the payback. I think I brought that up a couple times on different articles, but I don't want to get too in-depth here. Maybe we'll bring in some people that know more about student loans than me to talk about student loan borrowing and the realities of repayment. But I'll give you links to all these opinion pieces. Read them at will, just to get some other ideas of what's going on out there in the field of financial aid. And talking about the field... Maybe we should throw a little music on here as we get close to closing out the show today. And we've made it everybody. We've made it to the last sip segment. And I got to say, that that wasn't me making all that noise. That's a sound effect, everybody. Uh, I don't have any I Dare You twos for today. Of course, uh, we'll have something on Friday, whether it's me. Maybe I can get Dana to call in from her home as she's recovering. I'm anticipating she'll be hopefully in next week. But I want to make sure that she is well rested up and well recovered before she shows up. So I'm going to save my I Dare You twos. For the end of the week at this point and I think to get everybody here out on the road if you're not already listening on the road like I usually listen to so many podcasts when I'm in the car get the music rolling here and move our way on towards the end so although Dana's not with us today on the show I want to thank her and of course thank you our audience for tuning in if you have anything to say or you have some topics you want us to discuss email us at wbcspot at gmail.com. Remember, you can find this and all What's Brewing CISFA podcasts on Google Podcasts, your Apple Podcast app, Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio, and a tune-in app on your Amazon Echo by using Alexa. What's Brewing CISFA is a production of Studio 1051, a creative collaboration of Dana and myself. This has been episode number 117. Recorded the night of tuesday august 24th 2021 i hope everyone have a great day or night and of course have a great week